This is pretty much half a culture podcast. I am Torgo. I take care of the podcast while the master is away. Hey, uh, hey, Torgo, don't worry about it, brother. I'm, I'm back. You can go back to your room. Uh, this is Mark Lintemeyer. Today we are discussing beloved bad films, those selected poorly constructed movies that gain cult status, like, for instance, Manos, the Hands of Fate, who I was just quoting there. This is Erica Spires in New York City, and I am working on my own self-portrait with my cat. And I'm Brian Hurt. And I think I broke the tomato meter getting ready for this podcast. And our guest. Hi, I'm Jackie Naaman Jones, and I played little Debbie in Manos, the Hands of Fate. And this is my real voice. We'll get to that later. <laughs> yes, we should say a little bit. So if folks want to know more about as much as you could possibly want to know about Manos, your YouTube channel, you're reading your entire book that you wrote. Can you say a little about this book? Yes, I wrote a book uh, about four years ago titled Growing Up with Manos, the Hands of Fate, How I Was the Child Star of the Worst Movie Ever Made and Lived to Tell the Story. <laughs> that's the whole That's the whole title. But I've been saying lately how grateful I am that I wrote that when I did, because not only am I starting to have memory issues, but I also think that once I wrote it down, I didn't have to hold on to it so hard anymore. But there were other people still living, like my father, who played the master, and a couple people from the crew, and Diane Marie, who played my mother, and she's actually still living. But I had the opportunity to find and interview a number of people that are no longer here. So I'm very grateful I wrote that. But yeah, it's an entire book on the history of Manos, behind the scenes, how it came together, what's happened since then up to that point. And there's just a whole lot more that has happened since I wrote the book. It's just crazy. Every time Manos goes up and has this attention, then I enjoy it. And I go, well, that was fun. And then I'm like, I'm satisfied. And then all of a sudden it comes up again. And every time just a little higher, it's weird. So what I really enjoyed about that experience is the way you describe it, it's basically home movies, right? It's you and your dad was in it, and it was it's a community El Paso thing. This is 1966, 67, and you end up telling all about sort of what El Paso was like at the time and the subsequent careers of everybody involved. When the cracks show in the creative process, when it's no longer really movie magic, then you're actually getting a glimpse at real life, at these striving people trying to do something cool and artistic and show business has not polished their rough edges. <laughs> and so you get to see something, even though, you know, of course, part of the fascination is just whatever director mad person <laughs> was the key element behind this weird vision that resulted on the screen. But just everybody involved, the fact, you know, it, it's like, what's fun about community theater? Why Waiting for Guffman is such an entertaining movie or something like that? Yeah, these are community theater people. And I just found an article and posted it on my Facebook and on some of the fan pages yesterday about the play Henry IV that was happening at the local theater in 1966 and Hal Warren, who created Manos, was in it. And my dad played the lead role of Henry IV. Pretty much all of the men in Manos were in this play. Hal looked around and said, just about everything I need is right here. But yeah, he'd never made a film. Nobody had any experience with film. And this is the 60s, pre a lot of technology. So he actually rented a wind-up camera and bought a bunch of film and figured, how hard can it be? <laughs> 
We need to set some ground rules for this podcast just out of necessity. Are we or are we not spoiling the ending of Manos, The Hand of Fate? <laughs> I think that is fine. I think this is like Shakespeare, that it's okay if you know the, the broad <laughs> strokes of the plot before you experience it, because the experiencing of it is in the experience, not in the plot. Yeah, the ending is very disturbing for a lot of people, <laughs> particularly when you consider the child bride at the end is, in actuality, the master's daughter. Oh, I kept thinking that <laughs> So too. it just adds yeah, an extra layer to the whole thing, you know. But Debbie ends up as the seventh bride. Now he's got one for every day of the week. That's good. <laughs> so I just watched this and I did not watch the Mystery Science Theater version. I watched it for real on Amazon. Man. Uncut. And as I was watching it, I was like, okay, clearly it's a bad movie, right? We all know it's a bad movie. However, what in here actually is good? My mother and father started a community theater in Southern Missouri in basically the backwoods, right? Before I was born. So you can always find talent there. And I was like, oh my gosh, this guy, because I hadn't read any of the trivia yet, right? I just wanted to watch it. It's like, guy who plays the master is actually pretty good. I was like, there's some bad editing, but you can tell he has some skills. And then I was like, and the costumes are actually pretty good. And that painting is like, there's a lot of artistic elements that were like weird 60s stuff. And then I read, that was all your parents. Yeah, all the good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Including me. Including no. <laughs> you. But no, it's true. I, 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 and I was like, wow, how cool must that have been? And what a wonderful education you got, not only to experience clearly your parents were talented people, but also for you to see somebody who thought they were very talented, who was kind of botching the whole thing in spite of your parents' best efforts. In fact, my dad, that very year, he won the Best Actor Award at the Festival Theater for King Henry and Henry IV. My dad actually won Best Actor Award four times. I did grow up in the theater. In fact, I learned to read very well and very young because I loved nothing more than helping my dad run his lines and hanging out in his studio. So I was there watching him while he made the Torgo hand staff. He made me put on the little welding goggles. And I was there when my parents laid that fabric out on the living room floor and cut the hands out and laid it on there. I was really kind of beautiful. That costume was quite something, I think. In fact, my mother taught me to sew, and, and I'm a professional artist myself. I make custom master's robes, and they're signed and numbered. I've made 21 of them so far, and I made one for a woman in a central states, and she's four foot 11, and I made one for a guy that I shipped it to England, and he's six foot eight. <laughs> I'd love to get those two together. Wouldn't that be fun? Oh my gosh, yeah. So all of you cosplayers out there, get a hold of Jackie. And mom made uh, the wives' dresses. And, and you have to know, too, that Hal was quite the salesman, Hal Warren, who created all of this, because all of the art and props and costumes were out of pocket for my parents. They never got reimbursed. And Hal kept the robe and the painting. He had that painting in his living room for years, and he wore the robe every Halloween. Not to get too far afield with another movie, but I'm just curious if all of us have seen the movie Dolomite Is My Name, which came out last year, and it was on Netflix, and it was starring Eddie Murphy, and it's the making of the Rudy Ray Moore movies, the black exploitation movies in the 1970s. And the reason I ask is, 
it portrays the creation of what are very low budget but earnestly made movies and really got me thinking when I saw it. And then now in the context of Manos and then the other movies we saw, looking at the filmmaker's intent versus the product. And it's so insidery now because we're able to read your stories afterwards. But at the time, you just go to the movies with maybe expectations, maybe not. And you're just given this thing in front of you. And as an audience member, you kind of have to make those decisions up front. Are they trying to make something that isn't particularly coherent or is it good or is it are they trying to be cheeky? Are they trying to be first Second or third level ironic. Thanks, Mark, for sharing your article about the levels of irony. But I will say in relation to Mano said, I accidentally watched it twice. I went to watch the Mystery Science Theater version of it. And then once I got into it, I said, wait, I've seen this movie. And sure enough, I, like Erica, had seen it some years ago without the commentary. So it was different to, of course, have people goofing the whole time while it's going on. But I disagree with the premise that it's the worst movie. Oh, absolutely. I watched Birdemic yesterday and I just, I barely got through it. Man, that's bad. But with Manos, you have to understand too, this was El Paso in the 60s and the creative community was very tight knit. You know, there was one theater for acting for plays and they were a very tight knit group. And so the night of the premiere, nobody, not even the cast had seen any of it. We saw some outtakes, but nobody'd really seen it. And so we got all, everybody got all dressed up. It was a really big deal. Hal had light scanning the sky that he borrowed from the local car dealer and he had a red carpet. I mean, this is two miles from the Rio Grande River and water. As Mexico, right? So all the little street kids hanging around, he gave them little pads of pencils and they were the autograph seekers. It was ridiculous because they didn't even speak any English and we didn't speak Spanish. So it was just ridiculous. So the whole audience pretty much were friends of somebody that was in the movie or knew somebody had been to plays and had admired some of the actors like John Reynolds and my dad. And that movie started and about even before the end of the long opening driving scenes, you could hear people making comments. And then I don't know how far into it because I was just seven years old. And I was when my mouth opened on screen, I just started crying. I just cried through the rest of the thing. I was so humiliated. And I think everybody else in the cast and crew felt the same way. They were just appalled and they were trapped in the theater. But after it was shown that first night, the theater actually canceled the rest of the run. So nobody ever saw it more than that one time. And yeah, it was really bad. But you're right, by no means is it the worst movie ever made. But it's got some magic to it that just keeps it in the public eye. Just to clarify that it was shot as a silent film, which is why you tell in your book that the reason that, I don't know if they would have used your voice anyway, because being a young person and that would have been given how tight the budget was and uh, trying to get a coax a six-year-old. I don't know, they did it for Charlie Brown's Christmas. Apparently that was a fairly rapid process too, but that it was a matter of, I don't want to pay for the women actors to get to Dallas. So the male actors got to overdub their voices, but then it was like Harold P. Warren's sister-in-law who did all the female voices, you know, pretty much in one go. All the wives, Diane Marie and my voice. Oh yeah, and the kissing girl in the car. (laughs) One of the quotes that you have on this Cracked article that I just laughed at. Even I knew, I remember saying my lines and I knew I was too quiet because I was a shy kid. And I'd say, should we do it again? No, we're just going to move on. It'll be great. We'll fix it in the lab. 
Hal said that a lot. We'll fix it in the lab. And I remember thinking, wow, movie making must be magic because I don't know how he's going to fix all this. <laughs> Did you know he was shooting a silent film? I mean, because that was what made it actually affordable to do is that he wasn't recording sound at all, right? Right. And I don't think any of the women knew it either. I mean, why bother telling him? Wow. God, I mean, you know, this is a different aside, but Hal is so arrogant. He entered Diane Marie, who played my mother, into the El Paso beauty pageant so that he could say that his movie starred a, a beauty queen, but he didn't tell her he'd entered her. What a guy. See, that to me sounds like a movie needs to be made of him in the, the same vein, I guess, as the disaster artist, right? You just, what a fascinating, and I mean, I've told my friends this too, because there are times I've had such bad experiences doing shows, whether it's on film or in a theater, where I think to myself, why do we continue to do this? And we keep telling ourselves, it'll be worth it. It'll be worth it. Because somebody up there is a great cult leader, really making you believe it. Nobody wants to be the one to say, this just isn't working. And Manos was like that. I mean, there were times Bernie and the cameraman, stuntman... <laughs> Oh, Bernie and Bob, they were buddies anyway. They were poker buddies and they had pretty good sense of humor. I mean, they get so frustrated. They do things to see if Hal was even paying attention. Like, for instance, when my dad is standing with his arms out inside the lodge, if you look right next to him, you'll see the beer bottle. <laughs> they started harassing Hal outright just to get out some of their frustration. One day, I think it was Bernie showed up on set with a beret and a riding crop and walking around like once <laughs> barking out orders to everyone, you know. Yeah, those guys were pretty funny. So there seems to be a common thread here that in each of these, you mentioned Birdemic, so that's the brainchild of James Wen, who his other films, Rift Tracks has done a few of them, are just as bad and don't have the funny bad bird graphics to laugh at. And then Tommy Wiseau with The Room and Claudio Fragasso is the man behind Troll 2. That all these, it's just a single auteur, seemingly always a man. I'd be interested if there are any female-helmed ones that are this bad. So James Wen is current. I was about to say, it almost seems impossible that this could happen now. But clearly, it's still happening now. It's not the, the sociological changes and the ability of people to be in touch with feedback, to post rough cuts on the internet and get real-time feedback from people has changed so radically since the 60s. But yet we still have these big personalities who maybe they're Ed Wood being the prototype for this. But you get somebody who, for whatever reason, is not able to take feedback. That's true. Yeah, they're pretty, all of them are pretty self-absorbed and arrogant, for sure. I think you'd have to be. At some point, you're going to go, I don't know. Maybe we should take a different direction. Or maybe I should get some advice from somebody who knows something. But doesn't this happen on what end up being beloved AFI top 100 movies also. And maybe people just are so close to it, they don't realize. I mean, Jaws was famously a shit show as it was happening. And a lot of people were wondering if it would get finished. And what are we doing here? And besides being arguably one of the first summer blockbusters, really is, I think, a great movie. I know this movie just opened yesterday, Mank, about Herman Mankiewicz and the creation of Citizen Kane. Someone on Citizen Kane must have been looking around saying, what are we doing here? And what they were doing is making this hallowed movie. I'm not sure it's the greatest, but it is seen by a lot of people as this paragon of movie making. And that gets a little bit to what you were saying, Erica. Part of it is believing in someone and maybe part of it's just hope. 
you know, you're hoping that it really is going to be better than you think it is. And sometimes it is, and sometimes it's not. People making things like Sharknado know that they're making a joke, right? They have a completely different goal. And their goal is to achieve being funny through making something intentionally bad. And failing at that is kind of worse in some ways than failing in making something serious and having it being funny as a result of failing. Again, sorry, I'm, I'm getting into the layers of irony. And again, the idea of the intent of the filmmaker, but the worst movies are the ones that are just boring and that just you don't want to watch. And Jackie used the word magic. Yeah, there is total magic to Manos and it's hard to look away from it. I joked that I accidentally watched it twice. It was totally worth watching that second time. I mean, it was a different experience with the people goofing on it, but still there's something to it. There are many other movies that I'm sure have three stars on IMDb instead of one star and that are just would be impossible to sit through once, let alone twice. Yeah. Like I said, I watched Birdemic last night. And I mean, I have to be honest with you, I fast forwarded through some of it because it was so boring. I mean, I watched it and, and actually no birds showed up until probably two thirds of the way through the film. Nothing frightening happened. Not that that was frightening, but no indication. It was just picnics and goofy music and the beach. And oh, man, that was bad. And then there's like Plan 9 from Outer Space, which I think is really a cool movie because it was like Manos. As far as I can tell, Ed Wood was very serious about everything he was doing. That's what makes the bad good, I think, is that intensity, that intention and that true desire that they're at least hoping, like Erica said, that there's hope. <laughs> One of the most baffling things about Manos is the sheer boredom of the, especially the opening scene, which I understand from what you said, that maybe they thought they were going to put the opening credits over that. So it made sense to have just driving with weird music for a long time. It's kind of mesmerizing because the music is interesting, very foreign and weird to us, maybe less so at the time. But, you know, just when I was pulling up a scene of Torgo introducing himself this morning to figure out what his voice was, just you guys getting out of the car is like a 20-second experience. What are you doing? <laughs> like, just edit. I don't understand. It just It would have been too short if they just had people go to their marks, say their lines, move on to the next thing. Well, actually, yeah, I think that's what Hal was thinking, because he's renting a camera and he's buying expensive film and he doesn't want to waste a thing. I mean, very, very little got edited out. If he cut any more out, it just would have been way too short. We have several films, I guess, we've all kind of watched in prep for this. And like you were saying, Brian, there are different categories, right, of this. So Catwoman was one that I watched. I don't know if you've seen that one, Jackie, but it is really bad. And as I was watching Catwoman, I thought, I said out loud several times, wow, this is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. It is entertaining in the pacing. Like the pacing's pretty quick and there's stuff that's really funny in it because it's very much of the time. But it, there are things that try so hard and so are so incredibly misdirected, but also it clearly has a much bigger budget and flashier tools, but it's still done so incredibly poorly, even with actors who are quite good. So that's another, I think, category of bad movie. What did you guys, uh, I know, Mark, you watched Catwoman. I had trouble getting through it. I really wanted there to be commentary, but I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. I did watch it over two days. I couldn't get through it all in one sitting. 
you know, there are some sort of delightfully silly parts about it, but I don't think it rises to the level of transcendently bad. Like, it's just one more in that if you were in a particular mood, I guess some people probably like this, but I I want to distinguish something like guilty pleasures. So we have a list that I'll post that's 50 movies that are so bad that they're good. And most of those, like XXX, the action film. Triple X, Mark. Triple X, sorry. Come on. <laughs> How do you say out loud that the middle X is capitalized and the outer ones are not? I don't know how you're supposed to say that. I'm just letting you know like that I had just broken up with my high school boyfriend when I saw that movie and I had quite a thing for Vin Diesel at the time. Or Fear, the Marky Mark Reese Witherspoon thing or The Happening, which I kind of liked at the time. Oh, Mark, come on. (laughs) But those are, if you like them, I think you like them as guilty pleasures, not because of the sheer ineptitude of the filmmaking and the bravado of somebody who, you know, despite what I was saying about not taking feedback, like, that's also the hallmark of a great artist. (laughs) Like, that's what's so heartbreaking about some of this is that it's really just that these people, they have the exact attitude that Picasso had, but they're just not talented. (laughs) Whereas Catwoman is probably like a committee of people like screwing it up. Exactly. I think it was, (laughs) that was the problem. Too many cooks, far too many cooks. They just wanted to make some money. And so they tried to make things really sexy. They were trying to make, it was during the time when people were really getting into like female empowerment movies, but this was so misguided that every form of empowerment was just like, let's put Halle Berry in next to nothing and make her walk sexy like, like a cat walks. And like, it wasn't even DC, like it wasn't even about Catwoman from the comics, really. It was just somehow she died and a cat breathed life into her and she took on the physicality of a cat. So she was talking to her friend on the phone and then she would just jump up onto the couch and pounce places and then like eat really fast if it was fish. You know what I mean? Like, I hate the rain. I have to run away from the rain. I hate the rain. I watched that movie in its entirety in preparation for this. So, Fried. well, now I have to watch. <laughs> yeah, it. you really do. It's I'm gonna watch it today. There's this joke that everyone who's involved in making pornography wants to make real movies, and you got the sense that, that whoever this was who got a hundred million dollar budget to make Catwoman just actually wanted to make porn. It was the weirdest thing. Yeah, it's like here PG-13, but I'll do as close as I can to that. Right. As far as I could tell, there were two reasons to watch this movie. It was her boobs and her whip. (laughs) (laughs) Not a good movie at all, but not the worst either. But like the heart not in the right place. And I think at least for Manos, you can say the heart was in the right place. Yeah, it's hard for me with movies that have the money, the budget and the people. It's like, what's your excuse? How do you have an excuse to make a bad movie. I, I, I don't get it. I agree. It seems like such a waste of money and time and art. I'm sure The Happening is a great example of that. And maybe we'll have an M. Night Shyamalan episode at some point because he's established himself as an auteur successfully, you know, and had done a couple really good movies. And so he was in a position that nobody was going to tell him not to do this and he could just go with his own sensibility. And I guess we just saw the limits of that sensibility. Unless there's a story behind that and he hates it too. I don't know actually if there was studio interference or I wouldn't be surprised because I think when you get to that budget that like unless you're George Lucas and have so much money that you own every aspect of it. But then of course we have what he did with the with the prequels. So there you go. 
there's your excuse for having a bad movie. Like you work with all these wonderful artists creating the puppets and the CGI characters and whatever, but nobody's going to tell you that you don't know how to write dialogue or coach dialogue. I mean, to talk about what's wrong with Shyamalan movies and George Lucas movies, I think are two totally different things. We'll have to do research before we talk about Shyamalan too much more, but I think with him, the big issue was there was so much studio interference and he got bigger budgets. And as you know, the more people are involved, the more things can get changed to the point where he had really become something of a has-been. And I think he had to go back to that lower budget for, I don't know if you ever saw The Visit, but that was, I think, something of a resurgence for him, in part because he was able to retain more control. George Lucas, I think we've talked about before. He's just a hack. <laughs> he shouldn't have any money. The less money, the better. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. The days are darker and colder, and we've all been indoors a lot this year. Whether it's the season that's getting you down or maybe something preventing you from achieving your goals, you can get started with a professional licensed therapist through BetterHelp in under 24 hours. BetterHelp will match you with a counselor who can help you relieve anxiety, depression, grief, and a broad range of specialties that you may have trouble finding locally. What's even better, you can chat by video or phone in the comfort and safety of your own home, no matter where you are in the world. BetterHelp is confidential, convenient, and affordable. As a listener of Pretty Much Pop, you can start living a happier life today by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash pretty for 10% off your first month. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pretty. We also have another sponsor who wants you to think, again, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Well, unfortunately, if you go to Netflix, you'll discover a shocking lack of Die Hard. But there is a solution, ExpressVPN. Die Hard is actually available on German Netflix. So ExpressVPN changes your IP address. You can control where sites think you're located. You can choose from 100 different countries. This is totally legal. Very fun to try. And really, internet companies have no business knowing where you're logging in from. It installs in seconds. It switches over countries in seconds. I have this both on my computer and on my iPad where I do a lot of my personal watching. And it is very trippy with Netflix to just switch over to another country and see what it serves up to you, what licenses are active for that country. Of course, this is not just for Die Hard. You can use ExpressVPN to access thousands of new titles on Netflix, Disney+, BBC iPlayer, you name it. It is ridiculously fast for streaming movies. There's never any buffering. Always streams in 4K or HD and is compatible with all your devices. You could watch what you want on the go on the big screen. If you visit my special link right now at expressvpn.com slash pretty, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free on a one-year package. Support the show, watch what you want, protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash pretty. Now let's get back to the show. I think a lot of what the fun of these so bad they're good movies is that they develop this cult following. They develop a real community of goodwill with the conferences and things. Can you say something about that experience of connecting with this whole new mass of people? Oh, it's amazing. I wasn't familiar with Mystery Science Theater until the day in 1993 when my dad called me saying that he had just seen himself on television and Mono showed up after 27 years. But I did understand the fandom as I got into it because my best friend and I were huge Firesign Theater fans back in high school. And we drove everybody nuts because we were always riffing with Firesign Theater quotes. 
most of our friends, everybody were always rolling their eyes at us. We kind of were a, a team amongst ourselves. And every now and then you'd say something, a fire sign theater quote, and somebody's eyes would light up and it'd be like this little secret group. So I got it. And I'll tell you, the MST and Rift Tracks fans are just, they're the coolest people. They're like really cool nerds. And I just love them. They suit me perfectly. I love going to the conventions and all. I did one uh, at Crypticon a few years ago, Crypticon Seattle, and this young woman came up to my table. I have a banner over my head with myself uh, as little Debbie, and she kept looking up at that picture and looking at me and looking up at the picture. I go, it's an old picture. And then she just burst into tears when she realized that I was actually Debbie. I, I was like, oh, honey, don't cry. I had to give her a hug, you know? <laughs> I'm telling you, I've met the coolest people out of this whole experience. And of course, Joel Hodgson and Joel wrote the forward to my book, by the way. How lovely. What do you think it is that brings people together in that way? Because I find it kind of fascinating because part of the Rift Tracks and MST is poking fun at, right? But there also seems to be such a love for the original material as well. What do you find to be special about these people who can find both? It is a love. There's nothing mean-spirited about it. It's like embracing the kid that can't keep up or the one that always gets hit in the head when trying to play volleyball or something. <laughs> but but all the friends that gather around and just love them for who they are. I don't know. People are looking beyond something into what's behind it, I guess, because so many of these films are made with such love and intention. Very few people, I think, set out initially going, I'm going to make a bad movie. And the ones that do, those movies are just bad. There's nothing good about that because it's too much like, huh, see what I did there? I don't like that kind of stuff. And I don't think the MST fans are huge fans of that particular style. Sure. I mean, there's something about, like, I'm again thinking of Ed Wood. People won't notice. It's, uh, you know, we can have the gravestones tip over and be obviously cardboard. You know, they're trying to make a B movie, but that doesn't mean it's supposed to be a bad movie. It's supposed to be something that can be liked on a different level. And I think that's where the calculation can go wrong. There is a difference, I think, between like The Room was supposed to be a cat on a hot tin roof, like a really good drama. And it just is so off. Whereas most of these other examples were like, they're supposed to be something that is lower budget and is a horror and is appealing to a very tolerant, guilty pleasure kind of viewer and just miscalculating somehow. So I think you could actually be trying to make Sharktopus or something and still misfire so badly. So Velocipaster is one that came out recently that's actually pretty entertaining and is not made to be a bad movie, but it's definitely made to be a fun, junky horror movie. We kind of did that ourselves. I mean, we created Monos Returns, and it's the story of my character, Debbie, 50 years later. And what if she had stayed with the Valley Lodge? Who would she be? And in this case, she's not a very pleasant human. <laughs> because she was raised by that bunch. We have some very talented people that are my producers in different ways. Tanya Atomic makes her own horror films, and Rachel Jackson created Mono's Hands of Felt, 
the Puppet Theater, which is actually quite good. And then Joe Sherlock, our director of photography, he makes his own films. And I've actually been in probably four of his films. I think he's killed me every single time. But his films are intentionally B-movies. And very fun. He knows he's not making a great movie, but he and everybody involved are very dedicated and they are all doing the best job they can with what they have available. And he actually describes most of his films as uh, boobies, blood and beer. <laughs> but he's talented with the camera and he's intense and he's got the camera angles. And, and all in all, for what little money we had, it was intense. Everybody traveled from all over the place to my house. <laughs> so we had people in tents in the backyard. We had B&Bs. I mean, we did whatever we could to put people up. I was feeding most everybody, doing a lot of cooking. And that's how it is on a B-movie. You're doing the best you can, and we did too. And um, we've gotten mixed reviews. There's some people that just don't like our film. But I'm proud to say there's a whole lot of people that understand the time, the energy, the effort, and the intent. We weren't setting out to do the, huh? see what we did there? I mean, we have a couple of insider moments, definitely for the fans, but they were never intended to be bad. <laughs> There's probably a difference in the warmth of the fan reaction between people who are merely collateral damage of these films. So, you know, you went through this experience with people as opposed to Hal Warren, who is the perpetrator and is not with us to experience this. And certainly in The Troll 2, so this best worst movie, I'd really recommend to people. I, I enjoyed that. It's much more enjoyable than actually watching Troll 2. <laughs> And you kind of get enough of it through that. I think you don't have to see the original to see this documentary about it. But it's uh, something made by the guy who is the little boy in this 1990 supernatural comedy horror film. And the cast members all come off as very sympathetic. It's just the auteur, this Claudio Fragasso, who apparently was trying to make something seriously good and doesn't understand why people think it's so horrible that he's more like the uh, Tommy Wiseau, who, I don't know, you could turn around and just say, yes, I was trying to make a comedy all along. Please love me for that. But it just seems a very a, a much more difficult line to cross than you describing Manos as your home movies and and diving into the personal stories behind that. But even so, Deborah Reed, who played the main troll queen or whatever she was, I read in the trivia, she was like, let me do my own costumes. I already have these things that are going to look great. And like, she was a makeup artist, so she was doing all the weird makeup that she chose. I mean, it is bad for films, but it's not like she clearly had some talent in some of that too. And she comes off absolutely dreadful, obviously, like she's not a good actress, but she really was trying to portray this character in a way that she felt was correct, I think you do feel that similarity to what we were talking about with Manos, where at least some of the people, if not all of the people, were committed. It just did happen to be pretty terrible. Nothing worked in that movie, Troll 2. And I admit I only got half an hour into it. I probably should have not just been watching it, but watching it in some other way. But it was the acting and the writing and the pacing and the tone, editing, but otherwise... It was great. You didn't find it funny, though, and like enjoyable? I was clock watching for half an hour, and I just, I, I cannot watch this anymore. I had a really good time rewatching I had a good time rewatching it, you guys. Rewatching it. I've never it. seen right. it with Rift Tracks or anything. I just, that's probably the third time I've seen Troll 2. 
I had seen it as a teen or something on HBO. Like when I finally rolled across it as a riff tracks a little bit into it, like I totally remember this. There's something compelling about those horrible troll costumes. And the fact that Nilbong, the town that they go to is, is goblin spelled backwards. Whoa. I think I might have found that a little surprising and trippy, not scary or something as a 13 year old or whenever I saw this. Jackie, as a veteran of one of these, does that affect your experience of, of, you've already established that you're not very sympathetic to Birdemic, but like with Troll 2 or any of these others, do you make a point of seeing any of them or is it just Manos? And that's as far into the terrible movie genre as you want to go. I'm not huge on bad movies, although I've seen a lot. I, th- I thought it's interesting that earlier you all put Jaws into it. I, I remember when Jaws came out and my dad took me. I I think I was in high school and I remember really enjoying it. (laughs) Even the fake big jaws sharky thing, but Troll 2, I have not seen. The Room, I actually enjoyed that one as well. And I really enjoyed the movie about it, The Disaster Artist. I thought that was really well done. It's a good book too. By Greg Sestero, the the guy, you know, who, even though Mark and the other actors are obviously bad, they're sympathetic in a way that Tommy Wiseau is not (laughs) because he's insane. Well, if it weren't for Mark Sestero's, then I don't think The Room would have gotten any of the fame or sympathy for sure. I don't, it wouldn't have got any sympathy. Sorry, I should should have said Greg Sestero's. He plays Mark. Oh, hi, Mark. I get that a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Greg Sestero. I get them mixed up. I'll have to read that. I'm trying to think of some of these other films, but I went through that list of good, bad movies, and I was pretty amazed at how many I'd never heard of. So it made me think that that's something I'd like to do this winter. (laughs) Pick a few of those and kind of start analyzing them on on my own terms. I was surprised. There are several different lists that are out there of bad movies. There was one on Wikipedia, I think I brought up, and it went through the various decades. And I'd seen a lot of those. I'd seen a lot of them, and I was kind of surprised that they made a list. So there's still some sort of secret sauce of what gets something on a worst list. And I'm not sure what it is, because if it were just, like we were saying, if it were just bad, but dreadfully not watchable, I don't think it would make it on the list. Enough people had to have gotten through it to at least be able to put it on that kind of list. I wanted to talk about the Ringer article, which had the 50 best good bad movies, in part because it actually gave a formula, which I thought was kind of neat. And we'll link to this. I'm going to do it in a different order than they have it, but it's cultural relevance times public opinion divided by the Rotten Tomatoes score. And so the cultural relevance is how many times it's mentioned in Google Hits. Public opinion was based on a Twitter poll they put out about all these candidate movies, and those are both positive things, or not necessarily negative things about a movie. And then it's divided by the Rotten Tomatoes score. So, of course, the lower the score, the more it drives up the good-bad score because it's in the denominator. But I think the key thing there, and I wasn't, I guess, all that surprised I'd seen so many of these, is that two of those are positive things. I mean, public opinion is a positive thing, and cultural relevance means that it's something that we would have seen. I have a couple movies that I've seen a bunch of times over and over, and I didn't want to, re- we were texting before this began, I guess I should probably reveal what they are. 
Jackie, if I misspoke earlier, I am a big fan of Jaws. I think it is a good movie. But the one that's on this list that maybe isn't as great, but I still kind of love it, is Deep Blue Sea. I do too. Which is when they're being stalked by a super intelligent shark. Um, there are some very funny moments and surprising moments and genuinely scary moments in that movie. And the other on this list that I sometimes am just in the mood for is, is Con Air. Mm-hmm. And it's partly because... Nicolas Cage is so variably good and bad to the point where he is featured in an episode of Community, whether he is a good or bad actor. And that movie is ridiculous. But it also, there's something about it that just makes me smile. So, and at the same time, there are some here that truly are are not good. I'm surprised they got as high as scores as they did. My homework for this episode, I watched the movie Battleship and I, I couldn't get through it. When you're starting a movie and it says the first credit on the screen is, I guess it was Universal Studios. And then the second credit is Hasbro. Like, oh man, we are, (laughs) we are in for trouble. But 30 minutes into the movie and they still haven't encountered the bad guy at all. I mean, it's battleships against aliens and it's still. They hadn't guessed A4 yet. But it's this weird tone of constantly changing from the guy wants to, he's kind of screw up, but he's in the Navy and he's in love with the Admiral's daughter. But we cut to these World War II veterans. And so it's this kind of patriotic maudlin moment. And then it's people playing soccer against each other. And it's intolerable. It's so slow and boring. And come on, man, let's shoot something at a battleship already. So maybe I'll, I'll finish watching it. I think HBO Max is more of a curse than a blessing in my life right now. I love how many movies I have available to me, but I seem to walk away from it disappointed all the time. Maybe next year when we start getting new movies on HBO Max, it'll really come into its own. I can't divide when I look at this list between... So Masters of the Universe is number four, which I remember being simply dreadful. Not so bad it's good, but simply awful, but I'm sure if they make a riff tracks of it and it's good, then I will suddenly enjoy it again and I will see it as some brilliant, you know, so I think my Catwoman experience is a lot to that, that if there were funny things being said about Catwoman and pointing out all the things that I should find funny about it, then I would have found it so bad that it's good. But right now it just was depressing and awful and... (laughs) Made me not like humanity. I saw Deep Blue Sea and I saw Con Air and I actually, I liked those two movies. And Battleship, I had no desire to see because Hasbro was connected to it. And I was like, there's no, there's can't be anything interesting in that film for me. I mean, I raised two boys. I've seen enough toys around the house and stepped on shit. Yeah, there was no way I was even going to try that one. But, you know, you never know because... You know, the show ER, which was hugely successful and won Emmys, was just based on Operation. So, Well, that's I never (laughs) saw it that way. I may not have watched it, but I really liked that show. (laughs) The pilot is really clear when they're taking out a spare for $100. The other doctors, you'll never do that. Don't touch the sides. It's very literal. (laughs) Wow. Godzilla, 1998, number one on this list. Uh, I enjoyed that at the time. You know, as much as any other stupid movie, like the latest King Kong or Godzilla God of Monsters, like, it seemed fine. It had its moments. I mean, the monster was always a different size, depending on what it needed to fit through or not fit through. And they had to film it at night in the rain because of the limitations of CGI in 1998 and their budget. I did like the more recent Godzilla much more than this one. A lot of the films that are on this list in particular, and I think a lot of the lists are, they're just old enough that the internet was out and we talked about them. 
but also just old enough that CGI was really bad. And you can look back at stuff that was made in a few years before that, and they were using a lot more like models and, you know, special effects, but like handmade special effects. And those can be really beautiful, even if they're not done well, they can be really beautiful pieces of art. But CGI, it just moved like, as TVs get better, all that stuff looks worse and worse. So I think that makes sense that a lot of those are on the list. Like Congo, I'm sure that is much worse than I remembered it as a child. And Anaconda, I haven't gone back and seen that as an adult. But I remember as a kid, I knew it wasn't great, but I still had fun with it. I'm sure now it would just be dreadful. It's at least not boring. Let's put it that way. That seems to be the dividing line. These ones that have 40-second parking scenes. Like, there's so many in Birdemic of car pulling out into traffic, car parking, car pulling out into traffic again. For what reason? Who knows? Any final points we want to get into here? Or should we wrap this up? I'm just glad that Jackie, like, I don't know. How did you two become connected here? And I don't know if you know this, Jackie, but you might want to become best friends with Mark because he is a huge Rift Tracks fan. Well, I could go to him for advice. <laughs> I'll channel him sometimes then. Well, let's refer to folks to your, so you had a podcast a couple of years ago, Jackie's Hands of Horror. Yeah, Jackie's Hand of Horror. And it's just come back up for me. Several people have mentioned it and I had help with it, but I'm thinking of going a little bit different direction, and I'd like to find other people like myself out in the world that have been cast or crew of some of these riff tracks and MST movies and interview them. That's the premise of the direction of where I take it. That's a great idea. One more thing I forgot to mention. I've been in another movie that was actually way worse than Monos, but just very, very briefly. Uh, in high school, I was an extra in uh, The Curse of Bigfoot. All right. So I'm in this classroom scene. My drama teacher was friends with a guy who was putting this movie together. So this movie, though, it was filmed in the late 50s or early 60s. It got only like half done. And then this guy in Los Angeles found it and decided to finish it in the mid 70s. So it has all these high school characters in 50s clothes. And then it has us, the 70s kids. It's pretty bad. <laughs> so you are part of the framing device. Yes, that is also a, a, a riff tracks thing. I believe it's uh, it was on Amazon Prime. And another small thing is the boy sitting next to me in the scene. I'm the girl with the bangs and the long hair in the like second row of this classroom scene. And the kid right next to me, David, he was actually one of the baseball kids in, uh, gosh, it's that baseball movie. Uh, the Bad News Bears? Bad News Bears. Oh, my. Yeah. And then I was in another Bigfoot movie just a few years ago, and it's actually really good. It's called Primal Rage, and the cast and crew came up to my house, and we filmed a couple scenes in my backyard, and I got to be in it, my ex-husband, my kids, everybody. How exciting for you, Jackie. Like, you've had such a legacy in this, and you've clearly made so many true connections with people the way they want to be a part of your world. Oh, it's wonderful. I've had just so, so much fun with this. <laughs> Also, I want to plug Jackie's Etsy page as well. Is that your main place for selling the master's robes? Because that's awesome. I'm seeing Jackie's Manos. And that's, that's J-A-C-K-E-Y-S-M-A-N-O-S. 
that is some really cool stuff on there. Thanks. Yeah, I need to get on there and uh, do some updating. I've got a lot more artwork to add on there. And yeah, the master's robe and prints, my artwork. And thank you. Ooh, that scarf is nice, Jackie. Well, autocorrect changes it to jackets monos, just so you know. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I know, right? I just got to say, this is totally off topic, but every time I type out, I don't know why my computer autocorrects it this way. I got to be so careful. Every time I type out, I love you so much, it changes it to, I love you, douche. <laughs> <laughs> that is a wonderful closing thought. <laughs> Don't ever change that. We love you, douches. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Jackie. Thanks for joining us, Jackie. Thank you so much. It was fun. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.